0: We are in part four of an eight-week series through the book of Joshua. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm just amazed at how timely Joshua is. It's, uh, in light of the events that are happening in our world and the life of our church, it just seems so timely. And it's a credit to God and his foreknowledge of all things. That he knows all things before we even experience it or live it. He knows what's happening in our world and nothing catches him by surprise. And so this morning, we turn to a very important topic, uh, war and peace, war and peace. Our scripture comes from Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 to 23. And I'm gonna invite you as is tradition here at WPA to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Now, I must admit, we have a lot of reading to do today. We have a whole chapter, 23 verses. So there's some awkward titles and names in there. And we're just gonna just do our best. And if we come across something and we mispronounce it, mispronounce it we're just gonna go okay that's totally biblical it's totally okay we don't speak hebrew we're just gonna okay so joshua 11 verses 1 to 23 let's read together in one voice when jabin king of hazor heard of this he sent word to jobab king of madan to the kings of shimron and ashef And to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Erabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, and Perizzites, and Jubasites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops. And a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And all these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misropheth, Oh, something happened. It's okay. And to the valley of Mizpah. This is where you go. Okay, on the east until no survivors were left verse 9 maybe you're there Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots at that time Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms everyone in it they put to the sword they totally destroyed them not sparing anyone that breathed, and he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. And the Israelites carried off for themselves All the plunder and livestock of these cities. But all the people they put to the sword. Until they completely destroyed them. Not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses. So Moses commanded Joshua. And Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land. The hill country. All the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel with their foothills from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, "...from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the country of their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions, and then the land had rest from war. Okay, I quit. That was a lot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Joshua 11. And Lord, even though there's so much bloodshed and there's war and calamity, I just pray that we would understand how you usher in your peace in turbulent situations. Lord, our world is broken. There's brokenness in our city. There's brokenness in our country. Canada's struggling in many ways, economically, socially, politically. We recognize we need the peace of God to rule and reign in this land. And then we think about all the other nations of the world where there's war and famine and calamity. Oh, God, send your peace to those nations today. They need the Lord. So, Father, we commit our time to you today. We ask that you speak to our hearts and bring some level of application to our lives, that we'd seek the peace of God in all things. And so, Lord, I I thank you, Lord, that you're going to empower me. I have faith knowing that you'll enable me by your spirit to preach the word to your people. So I thank you for your empowerment right now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. History is one of many literary, literary genres that we find in the Bible. And there are several books that fall under this category. We have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and Second Samuel, first and Second Kings, first and Second Chronicles, and then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And when we think of biblical history, it's important to understand that it's not exhaustive meaning not everything that ever took place is written there. In fact, it is a selective and a strategic history because it is telling us or teaching us something about God. Furthermore, the more biblical history often includes the feature of summary. It's a beautiful trait of history. It tells us a lot of information in a short period of space so that we get the main points. Biblical history also shows us how God has interacted with humanity. And we're talking about today real people. We're talking about real places. We're talking about real problems. While the study of history is looking back into the past, it is also being written in the present. And when we write our history in the present, we prepare it for those who come in the future And they will read back what we did and how we did it. And so that is the nature of history in the Bible. The book of Joshua is a book about military conquest as well. It requires waging war against all these ites, occupying that promised land. And I understand that you might not be a fan of war. You might not be a fan of bloodshed, and I'm not either. But God deemed it necessary to uproot seven nations. And these are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jubasites. And there was another group among that group, the Anakites. Now we see these names reappear in Joshua chapter 11 verses 1 to 3. I'll just read it quickly. When Jabin king of Hazor heard of this, he sent word to Jobab king of Maidon. To the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of the Kinnereth, in the western foothills, in Napath, Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jubicides in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. And instead of battling one king and one nation at a time, we see the formation of what is called the Northern Coalition. The Northern Coalition. There's unity and desire to fight and to uh, work against Israel. Now, all of this was a reaction to what happened just the chapter before In Joshua chapter 10, there was a southern coalition of a bunch of groups and nations that gathered together and fought with Israel. In Joshua 10 42, it says, All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign. Why? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. I just want you to know one thing right from the very beginning God is fighting for you. It's that simple. God is fighting for us. How does a believer go about applying a text like this to their lives? How do we deal with all this war and this blood and... Ugh, gross. The purpose of war is a reminder to us that only God can grant us peace. We will not know what peace is if we don't understand what war is. War is the absence of peace. And so... It's one thing to see war on the news or on the tabloids today. But we have no clue what it's like to live in a state of war unless we've been through it. And some of you have. I know of some of you who have lived in various parts of the world where there was a war. And there still is a war. And you've escaped to come to Canada to find safe refuge. And you understand what war is. But many of us don't actually understand that. So then we cannot fully appreciate God's peace. Morning. I want to highlight three direct quotations from Joshua 11, verses 1 to 23, in order to teach you that no conflict is too big for our God and that He can turn war into peace when we have His favor in our lives. First point I want to share with you this morning if you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's into your hands. That's the quotation we find. Into your hands. I mean, we find it specifically in verses 6 to 9. Where it says that the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And here it is. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mishrapheth, Mam, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Now the enemies of Israel, they used different warfare tactics in battle. In verse 6 and verse 9 in particular, we learn that the northern coalition of kings, they used troops that were sent out with horse and chariot. It's very different. Their advantage would be sheer speed, that they could do way more than foot soldiers could ever do. And though the disadvantage laid with Israel, they were told not to fear by the Lord their God. All they needed to do was do one thing, is wait until tomorrow. Wow, just wait till tomorrow? What do you mean, God? They're ready to fight right now. And God says to them, I want you to wait until tomorrow. You know why? Tomorrow addresses and tests our patience. It creates hope in our hearts, believing that God is going to show up. Friends, I want to remind you that a lot can change in 24 hours when God is in it. A lot can change. Today, you might be in a sticky situation and a rough predicament, but in 24 hours tomorrow, everything could change. Only if God is in it. God promised that the opposition would be handed over into their hands, but not just into their hands. They would be handed over slain despite the odds here is god already declaring the victory before the battle has even begun god is the only one who can forecast the end from the beginning consider what god said about war in deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 1 scripture says when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours when their tactics are way better and stronger and greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt will be with you. This is a promise you can hold on to. Do you remember what happened in Egypt uh, with Pharaoh's 600 plus horses and chariots? We see this in verse uh, Exodus fourteen twenty five. It says, he jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. The Lord is fighting against them. And God can take the enemy's so-called advantage and turn it into a disadvantage. People will find themselves not fighting against people. They will find themselves fighting against the very Lord God. I don't want to fight with God. I don't think you want to fight with God. We want to stand with God. Do you remember how successful David was in battle? We read of one occasion where such a great victory was won. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. And it says, David captured a thousand of his chariots 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers, he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. What's up with the horses and the chariots and hamstringing them? What is up with that? I don't understand. Okay, we'll figure it out. Later in 2 Samuel eight fourteen, we read of the source of that victory, that there was someone working behind the scenes of David. It says, the Lord gave David victory wherever he You and I need to recognize together today that victories are not won based on human power. Victories are won based on divine favor. You need the divine favor of the Lord on your life. That's the only way you're going to win victories. Now, this does not mean that Joshua sat back, sipped an espresso, and watched everything just work out good for his life. Take a nap, read the newspaper. No. No. He was an idol. He didn't sit back passively. He chose to cooperate with God. And God wants to cooperate with you. And this is where many people can make a mistake. We see that Joshua cooperated with God by setting a sudden ambush. And what did they do? Yes, they attacked, they defeated, and they pursued those people, those oppressors and enemies. But here it is. It was God who handed them over to him. The partnership is that you have some work to do, but at the end of the day, you can't take credit for the work God has enabled you to do because it's God giving you the victory because his favor's on your life. The great defeat took place when the Israelites hamstringed the horses and they burned their chariots so that these enemies would never pose a threat again. And to hamstring the horses was to actually cut the tendon, making the animal immobile. The animal would be be left on the floor, lying on its side or on its body, on its front, and and it would be struggling to get up. It would want to get up, but could not get up. It would be bleeding, right? And it would be of no use. It would be rendered useless. To burn the chariots was to make a statement of supernatural superiority that indeed my God is greater than your God. And it was David, you might remember these words, he famously said this in Psalm 20 verse 7, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Friends, in the 21st century, some put their trust in blank, and other put their trust in blank, but we put our trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Is somebody with me this morning? I'm not going to trust in earthly things. I'm going to trust in divine things. Because the things of this world will not bring about the peace of God in my life. It is only the favor of the Lord. And I believe that the Lord can deliver your enemies right into your hands. Be it human enemies or spiritual enemies. But here's the caveat. We must commit ourselves into God's hands. So that he can commit our enemies into our hands. If your life is not in God's hands, he can't put anything into your hands. Because you cannot be trusted. But if your life is found in him, then he'll say, watch me. I'll put your enemies right into your hands. Secondly, today, a second quotation, a second point. As he was commanded. As he was commanded. And we see this in verse 12 to 15. It says, Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. And he totally destroyed them. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. And the Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities. But all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And here it is. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. A key insight here about moving from a state of war to a state of peace is listening to the voice of God and listening to the voice of your leaders in your life. That even though Moses had passed away, here is Joshua still upholding the instructions that he had received from Moses. Because these were the words of God. And God's words are valuable. He recognized that he was part of a two-step process. That Moses had completed the first step when he brought about the deliverance of God's people right out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Then Joshua had to fulfill the second step that would bring them not through deliverance, but into destiny. And God's plans are not always accomplished In a single generation. And this is why we believe in being a multi-generational church. That some of the plans we put our hands to today as a church are not just for us to realize in our lifetime. It might be your children. It might be your grandchildren. It might be generations after us. And we're building legacy in this place. Amen. So we often play a part in the story. Let's play our part well. But whether you are a starter, or you're a continuer, or you're a finisher, I want to encourage you today to see the big picture of what God is doing. Because it's bigger than you, and it's bigger than this church, and it's bigger than our city, it's bigger than our world, it's bigger than the cosmos. It's a salvation plan. We're a part of it. Play your part. Joshua was not only Moses' Moses's personal aid but he was also the military general. And he was often the very first to hear what God was saying due to his proximity to Moses and leadership. But once again, in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 to 17, the Lord instructed Moses about war and what would take place in the promised land. He said, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jubisites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, do what I'm telling you to do, basically. And here is Joshua, fulfilling what God had commanded Moses. And in Joshua 11, we read that he put them to the sword. And he totally and completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone. It's really important to see that... He really left nothing undone. And this brought a question to my heart and to my mind as I prepared this message for you today. How many things has God asked us to do where we started, but we never finished? Man, I can think of so many things where God said, Chris, I want you to do it. I want you to accomplish this for my glory. And I put my hands to it and I started doing it. And then life happened and I got busy and things started to happen in my life and around me in the situation, different variables. And I never finished what God told me to start. It's not about a checklist, my friends. It's about obedience to God. I've said it before from this pulpit I'll say it again partial obedience is disobedience it's only obedience when you fulfill the task God has called you to do until then it's partial obedience thirdly today the quote and the point I want to share with you is they hardened their hearts in verse 16 all the way to 20 it says so Joshua took the entire land the hill country all the Negev the whole region of Goshen the Western foothills, the Araba and the mountains of Israel with their foothills from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and put them to death. And Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. And here it is, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, here's where we all have questions. Extermination, wow, really mean, does Sounds horrible, doesn't it? It is. Now, we might wonder to ourselves today, why will God harden hearts instead of soften hearts? Why won't he make people's hearts soft? Isn't that the goal? That he could, if he can manipulate anybody's heart, he would make it soft, not hard. But the reason is because the hardening of hearts is a form of God's judgment. And when he uh, delivers his judgment, he does it with justice. Because as we sung today, he's a good God. There's good reason for his judgment. And God has already come to a verdict on the status of these nations. They were idolaters. They were immoral in every way. And they were attacking his prized possession, the very people of God called Israel. And God had a pattern of hardening the hearts of Israel's enemies throughout history. You know, the book of Joshua is really a mirror of what we see in the book of Exodus. And in many verses in Exodus, we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you remember that? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other verses, we read that Pharaoh and the officials, they hardened their own hearts. And then near the end of the book, as we're coming to the Exodus moment, it says that the Egyptians hardened their own hearts as a collective. We need to remember that this particular Pharaoh was the one who enslaved, the one who oppressed, the one who placed uh, the Israelites in a place of bondage and worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter with harsh labor. He treated them horribly. And God works against those who are hard-hearted towards his people. He doesn't soften hard hearts. He doesn't harden soft hearts, but already hard hearts. And when God hardens a heart, it will ultimately result in a person's demise. But here it is, the process of hardening a heart indicates that God always operates with a strategic plan. He's already observing the condition of things. He knows the heart of people. He knows what's inside of them. And the hardening of the king's heart led to the waging of war against Israel. And the waging of war against Israel led to the destruction, the extermination of the kings and the nations. So that Israel would receive the inheritance promised. Of the promised land. So when God hardens hearts, my friends, it is for your good. Catch me today. When God hardens hearts, it is for your good. It may get harder before it gets better, but it will be worth it. You can see that here. They would receive the promised land. As the worship team returns back to the platform and we come to a close this morning. I want to circle back to Joshua 11:23. The end of the chapter where it says these words, then the land had rest from war. Then the land had rest from war. Okay. Wonderful. We may stop here and think to ourselves, peace has come, but peace has not been fully received yet. That's not true. How do I know that? We'll just go a few more chapters forward. Later in Joshua 14, verse 15, we read the very same words again. And it says, then the land had rest from war. Okay, this must be it. This is peace. Peace has come. But no, that's not true either. And Joshua brought the Israelites into the promised land. Yes, but the land was never fully subdued and never at rest. How do I know? Just read the rest of the story during the time of the judges, during the time of the kings. It was a mess. I want to draw your attention to what the author of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews chapter four, verse eight. And he references Joshua all the way in Hebrews, reflecting on the life of Joshua in the Old Testament. And he says this, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another What is that another day? Basically, he's saying there's a different kind of rest that I have for my people. It's not rest as in geographical rest where there's no war. I'm talking about an eternal rest that I've prepared for you, my people. The rest is not a temporary peace. It's an eternal peace with God. And Jesus, he offered the Israelites a peace that Joshua could not give them. And yet to this day, it baffles me that many have not accepted this peace in Israel. And I would go so far to say today that this is why there continues to be a battle raging in that land. Is that the majority of the people in that nation who are Jewish Orthodox, They have not received Jesus as their Messiah. They say, nope, he might be a rabbi, but we don't want anything to do with him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, you're a cult. They disown you. They don't want anything to do with you. In fact, I've seen in some situations, they spit upon Christians because they're bound up in religion instead of a relationship with their God. They're bound up with rituals without knowing the heart of their God. And here's my sincere personal belief, okay? I know this is a polarized topic and I don't want to get into it today. Maybe another day, but not today, okay? But if the Jews of Israel would recognize Jesus as their Messiah, I believe peace will come to Israel. Simple truth. I just believe it. God is, there is war in that place because they do not know Jesus. There's a battle raging. Now, friends, today, can I tell you why I believe that so strongly? Is because peace cannot be achieved by war. The nations rage against one another. It's just a matter of time. Other nations will get upset with other, with one another and have war. And no doubt, I believe we're in the last days and we're getting closer each and every day. And the Bible tells us prophetically that there will be more wars. There will be turbulent times. peace cannot be achieved by war. The world does not know peace. Jesus said, peace I give you. Not as the world gives. I give you a different supernatural kind of peace. A peace that passes all understanding. I'm all about that other peace. And peace is a person. And that person's name is Jesus. Without Jesus, you can't have peace. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I would beg to take this, this this decision today. I just say, you know what? You're probably living with an absence of peace in your life. I just say that today. You're probably living with an absence of peace. And if you want peace in your life, you need to come into a relationship with Jesus. There's no other way. So today, I think the best thing we can do this morning is pray. And we did this morning briefly, but I wanna pray in detail today.